listening to Frankly Earnest. Hosted by Sam Christie. Co-host, Allison Hall. Special guest, Samantha Iglesias. This is a podcast made with Anchor by Spotify. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Frankly Earnest. I'm Sam Christie, the host, and I'm with Allie, my co-host. Hello, Allie. Hello, Sam. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? You know, I'm I'm all right. I'm here, and it's great to be here. It is really good to be here. We just we just put out episode three. I'm really excited uh, for people to listen. Mm-hmm. And and if you have, then and made it here. This is episode four. Usually you announce the episode and discuss it. <laughs> but Usually. maybe you've done that already in the intro. I won't. Um, I won't. I will make sure in this one that you open us up. Well, listeners, this is what you get when we rely on Sam to provide the information. I don't know about you guys, but I think Sam did a fine job. Today, he's going to talk about his experience after his mom died. Then he'll talk about some stories his dad told him about prison. We'll finish the episode talking about Nina and when she entered the picture, but we'll talk about the trial regarding her and Ernie next week. Thanks for tuning in. episode four um prison stories i've been thinking about the years after my mom died Mm -hmm. and wanting to tell what that was like for me just because um especially because i haven't had a good feel for who i was you know i was um scared so my dad was really frightening to me i can think back to when i was a kid and i know now that i was scared i don't know that i was really facing that back then you know i was going through the motions going to school hoping he didn't show up kind of like just like i did at the coast guard station just hoping that things were going to go my way but feeling really powerless so he would show up and um, I would um, I would feel really anxious, really nervous. And I, I think I was I was a really anxious kid in school too. I got targeted by bullies a lot and I was learning at home to stand still and take the take the, the smacks to the face. And so at school I just kind of fell into that same role. And, you know, I mean that's like throwing gasoline on a fire you know if a bully can slap you and you just stand there and and wait for another one um and and so i i was getting harassed quite a bit and i was just really nervous too and you know and i and i thought well all kids are just super nervous you know in social in school and 
you know, I now as an adult look back and, and I think, well, well, school sucked. School, the way we do school is anxiety producing, you know, yeah. um, it, it, it absolutely is. But it was the bright spot in my life. It was the place I could go where my dad couldn't. So I was living with my grandparents and I was going going to school and, and trying to do well there and trying to avoid the bullies. And by uh, by third grade, I was I was pulling ahead of most of the class and um, and starting to kind of feel secure, you know, that I was. I had this value because I was really smart and, you know, people would say, Oh, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer. And I just kind of thought, okay, yeah, I'm going to get through school. And then someone's going to look at me and say, all right, you're so smart. Let's make you a doctor. And that's not really how, how that works. Yeah. I didn't really develop good study habits and I was interrupted a lot. So my dad would just show up. Right. Yeah. And, Incidentally, this is kind of what I would do too after I got ended up getting divorced. I would just kind of show up at the house and see who was available to visit because my life was kind of falling apart. I was falling apart. And my dad's life was falling apart too, but um, he handled it a lot differently than me. So I didn't, you know, see a lot of what he was doing back then. Um, he would just yeah. come into my grandparents' home and make a mess and and make a fight and drag me out and take me somewhere unpleasant, like working on the boat. Or sometimes, you know, he he'd come over on his on his Harley and he still lived he lived out in Fieldbrook by himself, and he, he had a series of of girlfriends and relationships and. Um, did some armed robbery and some arson and, you know, his usual shtick. We're working on getting, um, we're working on getting his arrest records, right? We are. We are working on those. So, um, Allie's gonna, gonna call with me tomorrow. We're going to call the mm -hmm. Humboldt Sheriff's, Humboldt County Sheriff's Department mm -hmm. together yep. and uh, see if we can get that request, request moved forward. Yep. The same thing nice with, to... um, Claire's, Claire's as well. And Claire, yeah, Claire's missing information on Claire, yeah, that'd be great too. Yeah. Um. Well. Anyway, that was what de my dad had going on, and um, and then he, um, within a couple of years, and I see that's I don't like to get the dates for these things, but within a couple of years, he was, um, he went on this shooting spree, this multi-day spree going around town, shooting windows out of houses. He shot into 30 occupied dwellings. That was his um, uh, charge, I believe. That's mm -hmm. what he said. And then he, he went to prison. And I was almost eight, I think, when he went. And I wasn't supposed to be happy, but I was so happy. Life was so much better. Oh, my God, it was so much better. It was so peaceful. I just got to do Cub Scouts and school, and I started playing soccer. I started taking guitar lessons. Grandma, you know, really, really, really wanted to, you know, provide everything she could for me. And she really, you know, she was very paranoid that I was going to end up like Ernie 
And so she was always telling me, don't, now don't you hit. Jesus doesn't want you to hit anybody. <clears throat> so I, I really internalized that message. I believe, well, yeah, that's true, but I'm not hitting anybody. I don't fight people. I'm getting hit. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't say that, you know, um, because if I said, you know, there's this bully at school, she would launch into a lecture about how I better not fight. I better run, you know, um, run, run, go tell the teacher, don't you ever fight back. And, you know, um, she, and I, I now see she was just worried about cranking out another Ernie because it, 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 she was still going through the trauma of having him as her son. So he was away for two and a half years and, and when he got out, I would have been maybe 10. And, and I believe I had just broken my leg. Yeah, that's what happened. He got out of prison and he was at the house and he's just plopped on the couch. And this is all I remember. I was bored and he's working the TV. I can't watch my show anymore that I usually watch. I had kind of had the run of the house, you know, and now all of a sudden it's him everywhere and he's kind of angry and loud and, and rude. Um, it's funny. He's a very, he was a very charming man in a lot of situations. A lot of people really loved him, but at home he was, he just felt free to be a super asshole. I wanted to go and visit my friend Daniel and I made the mistake of asking my dad he's sitting on the couch he's watching TV I'm like dad I, I want to go ride my bike down and visit Daniel and I do that and and he just he didn't look at me he just angrily said no you just stay at home and like you wouldn't he wasn't talking to me it wasn't the way grandma would deal with me and I felt really angry so I went out aside out into the driveway and I thought, you know, screw him. He's, he's watching TV. I'm just going to go visit Daniel anyway. So I was a rebellious kid. So I got on my bike and I rode real fast, went down the driveway, shot out into the road and the neighbor was driving by and I hit her car, broke my femur. Oh my God. And wound up, uh, wound up in the hospital. Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, the upside is I don't think my dad even came with us to the hospital. My grandma and grandpa took me and my dad just took off. And so for the next few months, four or five months while I was healing, I didn't see much of it. It was right at the beginning of third grade when I broke my leg because I was in Mrs. Bush's class in a wheelchair and there was a girl in that class who, um, who was also my neighbor and her dad built a little lap desk that would sit, you know, that I could use in my wheelchair to do my schoolwork and do my homework. Oh. Yeah. Right. I can't, it, I feel like her name was. Beverly or Barbara, but that sounds like an old name. <laughs> I don't know if that's, if that was her name, but she lived around the block from me and, and I was in third grade and my dad really wasn't there. And then, um, 
he was in he was in jail when we moved. So we had to go visit him a little bit when he was in the California prison system, but he was sometimes put in places like way far away. And so thank God we didn't have to do it very often. Um, we took a few trips, you know, down to Southern California, two or three trips to visit him while he was in prison. And then, um, and then he got moved back up. And, and so one of his stories is, is how prison went for him and, and, you know, anybody who hates my dad and and wishes he, you know, got all the punishment he could might be angered by this story, but it, it is it is uh, it is his story. So he was in uh, kind of a medium security situation, working in the kitchen um, with a lot of people, big prison population, and he got into a disagreement with the folks who were. Uh, folks who were running the kitchen so it was all you know ganged up in, in prison and he said the mexicans ran the kitchen and they had all their you know all their people in there in those good kitchen jobs but my dad had gotten a kitchen job and they were kind of pressuring him to leave that job and he didn't want to and they they told him that you know he needed to go request a, a transfer or they were going to roll on him, which i you know learned means beat him up um and and his response was fuck it roll on me and that, that's kind of who my dad was now he was a coward and you know when it came down to it if he could be but he wouldn't back down face to face with someone someone's talking trash my dad was was ready to go for it ready to start swinging even if he lost because he was never going to you know cower or uh, you know in the he didn't he was never going to look like the weak one you know yeah. He's, you know, he's, he's the insecure, typical alpha male, but like, I don't want to say typical because he, um, you know, is perhaps, perhaps more violent and crazy than most, but he, he was you know, quite deranged. Yeah. Yeah. But he was very open about it in public, which was yeah. not something that I'm used to seeing. You know, there's a lot of tough guys out there, but, um, my dad was the one that would start a fight with a stranger for, you know, for no reason. Yeah. Um, and, and, and he was ready to go to the hospital over it, you know, like right now all the time. <laughs> it was very, very jarring to yeah. have to be around him. Cause I, you know, I liked dressing nice and going places with my grandma. We'd go to the convalescent hospitals after church on Sunday, not every Sunday, but like every other Sunday, my grandmother did the church, the flowers for the church. And she'd um, load up a bunch of extra flowers or leftover stuff from the service and then re-bouquet them while I played at the church. And then we'd go and she'd have a round of, you know, folks who had, who she knew or folks who had been in the church but were in, a, in this nurses, nursing facility. And uh, she'd drop off flowers and we'd, we'd sit and visit with people. Um, and I enjoyed that kind of life. I didn't really like going down to the bar and um, getting called names and, you know, having people fighting and anyways, whatever. It wasn't my thing, but he had, he wanted to tell me about his prison experience. And so it's his first, it's his first year in prison. Right. And he's, he's been in a couple of facilities, but he's in this, in this one, uh, Susanville in central California. And he tells the, the Mexican leader, like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep my kitchen job. And you, you do whatever you have to do. And so he's in the, you know, a couple of days later, he's 
he's in his bunk and he realizes everybody's kind of left this little dorm area where they were at. <clears throat> and it's all, it's open bunks in a, in like a, you know, everybody's got like barracks, you know, not mm -hmm. individual cells. So, so it's not, maybe it's not medium security, but it was anyway. So he's, he's in this area and they come in. He said it was eight guys and they held him, got him down and, and, uh, held his arms and his legs down. And then the ones that were standing took the handles off of mop ringer buckets and started hitting him in the head with them. Oh my God. And, um, and he said he managed to get his hands free and cover his head. And, and if you, if you could see my dad's hands, I, I grew up around them and they were gnarled. He said that almost every bone in his hands was broken and I believe it. Like they still functioned, but it was some kind of miracle magic by which they still functioned. And he had, he had a lot of scarring on his head. Um, and he didn't have any upper teeth anymore. And that might've been cause he had dental, bad dental hygiene, but this was like his early thirties. And when he got out of or mid thirties, when he got out of, out of uh, prison, he, he had a, a uh, upper plate. So he had this, this incident, he wakes up laying there alone still in a pool of blood. And he manages to drag himself out of that dorm area into the hallway and yell for a guard. So he's in the infirmary, he's getting better. And they call him down to, I don't know, the, the warden's office. And there's some folks there from the prison, right? And they want to talk to him. And sure. And they're like, look, you're getting better. We're going to put you back out into general population, but we want to make sure there's not going to be any trouble. You know, there was a, you know, there was an incident, you know, but um, we're going to station you somewhere else. There shouldn't be any trouble. And my dad looks at these people and says, well, you know, fuck you, first of all. But, um, you know, you put me out there on that yard. You put me anywhere where I can get a hold of any one of those people. The first one I see I'm going to kill him in front of you all. And they're like, Ernie, God damn it, Ernie. And he's like, what are you going to do? Throw me in jail? Those people, those people rode on me and, uh, and I'm going to kill him. And, and they were frustrated and, and, and the, the warden or lead guy or whatever asked, well, Ernie, what, you know, what do you expect us to do here? You know, what do you think we should do? How are we, you know, how can we possibly handle this rhetorically? Right. And my dad says, you can send me to one of the, um, super minimum security conservation fire camps, you know, where the prisoners go to, to, uh, run chainsaws and fight fires in California. And they just live in a little campground with no fences. And he said the whole room busted out laughing when he said it. And then he went back to the infirmary and two days later, they called him in and it was just the warden. And the warden said, Ernie, you fucking son of a bitch, you got your wish. And they sent him up to a, a minimum secure. So he'd shot out 30 windows of 30 houses, super violent guy. And he didn't even do a year in light, light duty prison. And now he's going to this, um, going to this camp. Wow. And... <laughs> I have, I, you know, there's, there's a lot more stories I want to get to, <laughs> but I was hearing these stories at the same time that, um, that he was, um, he was dating 
this lady Nina, who he had known previously, and and he and Nina were you know kind of an item. So I saw a lot of Nina coming around, and um, and I liked her, but I liked any any woman that would come along. I really wanted my mom back, and so even though my dad was violent, and I sort of you know sort of knew you know he hadn't really started at that point uh, telling me stories about beating my mom so i was you know 10 11 years old he's dating nina and i remembered that he hit my mom in the face with a with a can like a vegetable can and cut her nose open and i remember there were little incidents but at that point, like, I didn't remember that he used to beat her, you know, that was stuff that, that I barely kind of put together later. Yeah. Um, so I didn't think of him as a violent guy and he wasn't being violent with me. It just had this general, general fear and discomfort about him. But Nina's coming around and we start looking, I'm going with him because we're looking for a house that we can all rent. And... Uh, we ended up staying with Nina out in her place because um, she had a little a little trailer out in the country, and uh, she had a, a five year old daughter, and I was ten, eleven, and you know, so yeah, we're not exactly you know playmate ages, but you know, I I entertained her, and you know, we hang out and stuff, and Nina was cool. She was a chef, and and she used to make the most wonderful omelets. She showed me one day that she chopped up the tomatoes really fine, and then she would so, uh, get all the moisture out of them, blot them with paper towels, and let the tomatoes dry so that they didn't make the omelet wet. And I still, I still follow what I watched her do that day when I make an omelet. <laughs> um, and I, and Nina and my dad ended up getting married pretty quickly. And I want to tell the whole story. But I kind of want to pause here because we need to do we need to do that next week. Um, I want to tell the whole story of what happened with Nina, and then we can talk a little bit about the trial um, because um, that's going to take a whole episode. So that's next week. If you're listening now, uh, come back <laughs> come back next week. That might be a little early to say it, uh, but I'll I'll keep dropping hints. But anyway, my dad's telling me stories, you know, and I whatever, Nina, that's, I knew all I needed to know, what they're getting married, what we're getting the house. Okay. I was 11. I had my own concerns, um, you know, school and, and friends and, and girls I liked and, you know, and wondering how this was going to affect me. Was I going to have to change schools? Um, you know, but it was, for the most part, it was kind of nice to have my dad occupied. He was still kind of an asshole. Like, you know, every evening, I had to go to bed early and stay in my room so that they could have their time alone. And I'm kind of a smart ass. So anytime I would mouth off about that, uh, then I would end up going, being sent to my room without dinner. So I've you know, been in there four or five in the afternoon and, and instructed, well, you know, we'll see you in the morning. And I knew better than to come out So it was, you know, at least his, you know, I look back and his focus was on her, 
and I wasn't being abused, but I didn't really know what was coming, you know? Um, so I didn't, I, I kind of, I really wanted to be out there with the action, see what's going on. And I wanted to be around my dad. I wanted to hear his stories. He had all these Polaroids of, um, folks he went to prison with getaway, Bob, Sherelle, Sherelle, Sherelle was an, was a little bit of an artist and he used to do, um, watercolor, uh, colored pencil drawings on my, uh, on the envelopes that my dad would send me letters in. So I'd get these, these envelopes from, you know, from prison letters from my dad and he'd have had, um, Sherelle do the, the drawings. And he had a photo of Sherelle there. There's my buddy Sherelle. He had a photo of Getaway Bob. Getaway Bob was a bank robber uh, in the days before facial recognition technology, before any kind of database. He'd never been arrested. So nobody knew who he was. He'd walk into banks and rob him without a mask on and walk out. And they'd look at the camera and like security footage and like, well, there, there's the guy. That's him talking to the teller and robbing the bank. Who is he? We don't know. Um, and he got away with it for a long time. That's why they called him Getaway Bob. But his, um, he had some money and he robbed banks all over California. This is the story. So, I, you know, we'd have to check all this, but it's a fun story. Getaway Bob had a girlfriend who was a former Miss California. That should be easy to find out. Getaway Bob was in prison. He might have been a liar. Anyway, that's the story that Dad told about Getaway Bob. And he dated this Miss America and then, or Miss California, and then had uh, then she they broke up and she uh, ended up next with an FBI agent who had happened to be working on those bank robberies and like five years into their marriage he put two and two together and they went and picked up getaway Bob and threw him in prison it's, you know because how, how could that happen you wow. you work on a on a string of robberies and then you end up dating a girl who was with the bank robber that's crazy anyway so getaway Bob was one of the guys in the photos and uh, ironically, in the end, he didn't get away. Another guy in the photos was Grand Theft Avocado. He had uh, stolen a bunch of avocados, but he um, apparently, you know, stole them from his girlfriend's dad's orchard. And, and her dad was connected to a judge or was the judge in that county. And so... Grand Theft Avocado got charged with Grand Theft Avocado. I'd ask, what's Grand Theft Avocado's real name? And he's like, uh, well, I don't know. We just called him Grand Theft Avocado. And then he had this story. So he had these stories, right? And he had these photos. And then he had this other friend called Little Red. And he'd tell stories about Little Red. I noticed right away, I, I didn't know which one in the photos was Little Red. I'm looking through all the prison photos. I don't see... I see Sherelle, I see Getaway Bob, I see um, Grand Theft Avocado. <laughs> I was like, oh, I can't think of his name. Yeah, that's because it's Grand Theft Avocado. Um, but Little Red, I I, did, I hadn't asked yet, but I didn't know which one was Little Red, and I was starting to feel like there wasn't another person in the photo that could be Little Red. And then my dad was telling me stories. He told me the story of Little Red. And, um, and, um, and it hadn't escaped me completely at this point, although I, I really thought he was talking about somebody else because he was insistent that he was talking about somebody else. 
not him. He's my dad was five nine, flaming red hair. Easily could have fit little red, but I didn't think this because he's telling it like this is another person, this is a separate person, little red. And he, and he would talk about his conversations with little red because he would watch little red do something that he said really bothered him. When the new bus would come in with, uh, with new inmates, little red would go up and wait. And as the new inmates got off the bus, he would spot the biggest one in the group and he would go up to them and confront them and say, you're going to, you're going to kick my, you're going to fight me right now. And I'm going to kick your fucking ass. Or you're going to get down in front of everybody and suck my dick. You got two choices. We're explicit, right? Very explicit. And, and my dad says that every, every inmate, none of them wanted to fight. They'd all, they'd all just get down on their knees and suck his dick right there. And uh, my dad would say, you know, I talked, you know, I talked to little red after like, dude, why, you know, why do you do that? And, uh, and little red would say, this is my home. This is my place. His story about little red always involved his conversation with little red, where little red would explain to him why he did that, why he had to, you know, cause he couldn't have big guys coming in thinking they're tough. He needed to show them that they weren't and he needed them to see it, everybody to see it. And, and, and that was his thing. And my dad wouldn't provide any more commentary on it. He would just, the only commentary he ever gave was his his original in his story the question of little red why why do you do that so it, it really does kind of for me now it kind of begs the question you know and, um if i'm using that phrase right um it seems it seems pretty obvious that he was just telling the story to that was his way of telling what he did you know um because there wasn't really any of him in the story. It was all a story about little red and him just, you know, asking little red questions. And then, and then he had knew all, had all of little red's answers recited. So <clears throat> obviously it was him, but now is that really what happened? I don't know what really happened, but it's possible that, you know, that he was doing that kind of stuff in prison anyway. Yeah. So he would tell me these stories and, I don't know. It's uh, I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse to know them now, but he was in the um, in this uh, minimum conservation or minimum security, no fence conservation camp in the in the redwoods in northern Mendocino County. Yeah. So aside from you know possibly um, intimidating and. Um, sexually assaulting other inmates my dad also worked on the fire crew now they already had folks running chainsaws so even even though he you know said he had experience with chainsaws he was you know part of the crew carrying tools and um and then it became his job to be the, the what they call the swamper or the person with the chainsaw, he carried their gas and oil and had their tools ready for him. Um, and they would just work together as a team. Uh, but again, my dad's working in the kitchen. So when they're not out on a fire, he is figuring out how to get into the, the cage where they keep the fire meals. So they had in the kitchen, they had this chain link gate locked 
and behind it, these boxed meals that they would send out with the fire crew. So every time you go out on a fire, you take these box meals with you. And then, you know, we have a supply of them here and they're just like MRE stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Always ready to go. But my dad figured out that if he could kind of unhook the hinge on one side of the gate and then use kitchen tools, he could pull the boxes forward and he could get them out one by one and then push them back in. So he'd pull a box out, open it up, take the brownie out. And so that became his treat for himself. And then they started going on fires and uh, there were no brownies in the boxes, no desserts, because my dad had already ate them all. And they had a, um, they had a hatchery, a fish hatchery nearby, and they had a, um, a smokehouse. And so the prisoners would, you know, the guards would bring in some, some fish from the hatchery and the prisoners would light a fire and try to smoke some fish. And it wasn't, you know, they weren't really getting, you know, good quality out of it. And, and word got around to the guards somehow, you know, wait, wasn't, wasn't Ernie a commercial fisherman? He was a commercial salmon fisherman. So they brought him in and said, Hey, do you, do you know how to smoke salmon? And of course my dad said, sure. He knew how we had a, I remember the smoker. I, I, I used to help smoke salmon when my mom was alive. Um, so anyway, my dad starts smoking the salmon and he's, you know, he's going to get a supply of fish. He's trying to get the stuff together for the brine, everything he needs to, to start. And one of the guards comes to him and says, Hey man, I'm going to need, you know, about half of what you get out of this. And then another guard comes to him and says, Hey, I'm going to need, you know, more than half of, of what you get out of this. And, and he had three different guards come to him privately and tell him, I'm going to be getting the salmon out of this next batch. And so my dad went to the warden and explained the situation to him. And the warden told him, I don't care who you give the salmon to Ernie, as long as you don't ever give any, don't ever give any to any of these three guards and I'll let them know about, don't you worry about anything. So my, my lucky dad now has full control over the, the salmon. So they're bringing it in from the hatchery and he's got a couple of prisoner uh, fellow inmates working for him, uh, cutting wood and, you know, doing the, doing all the work for smoking fish. And he's got these, batches of salmon going through the smoker and my grandma and grandpa would bring me down and we'd get a you know big bag of smoked salmon to take home while my dad would you know have someone he knew from from Humboldt come down bring some drugs um and he so he used salmon as his currency and he lived like a king the whole time he was in there he didn't have to go on fires anymore he just tended the tended the smokehouse and you know, screwed around for uh, for a year and a half. And that was his, that was his prison. And he got out, I think, you know, feeling very wronged still, like, like, um, like he had been somehow cheated, you know, on, you know, um, like, yeah, he shot out those 30 windows, but, you know, he felt justified because those people sucked. And, um, and, you know, and, and he, and he just liked to rehearse all the ways that he had been wronged. So honestly, when he started getting closer with Nina and they got married, I was kind of relieved 
to not have to listen to all this anymore because he went on and on about about all these all these people Sherelle, little red um getaway bob there's more to that story but it's kind of dirty we'll save it for a, a fun episode <laughs> it's um it's mr squiggy if you're curious about mr squiggy you can look it up or you can you know uh, post a comment, you know, asking us, please do an episode on Mr. Squiggy. But I, you know, that's all I want to say about it because, you know, I don't like to be crass anyway. Um, so, so that was, that was where we were at. Um, you know, Nina and my dad and they'd been married for about a month and all of a sudden she wasn't around and he was wanting to talk to me and i don't remember a lot of what he said probably because you know a 10 11 year olds aren't really equipped to hear about their parents romantic troubles um you know i i don't i and also he was nuts but i didn't really realize that at the time um but he was very unhappy about nina um, and he told me that uh, as soon as they got married, she had stopped having sex with him, to, you know, to control him because that's what women do. And, uh, you know, he's really pissed and he's not going to stand for this. And, you know, and it's because she's talking to her mother and, you know, he's got to cut them off. Like he was very open about that. Um, and, and then one day we were we were riding in the truck. And um, and I'll tell this part this week, but we'll. You know, this is all I'll tell about it until we till we come back next week and then we'll talk about the trial. But we were sure. riding in the truck and we can revisit this too. But my, my dad was driving, Nina was sitting next to him, and this is a regular a regular cab, just a bench seat, um, nineteen eighty one, eight seventy eight maybe uh Dodge truck. Mm-hmm. And it's him driving, Nina next to him her five-year-old daughter next to me and then me over up against the passenger door and we drive into Eureka and my dad is doing all the talking and it's turning into yelling and she's arguing back and he grabs her purse out of her hands and throws it out the window on uh, 4th Street this big three-lane street coming into town he's going through a through the through the light a big intersection just throws the bag and it, you know, scatters all over and she gets upset. Like, what the, what are you doing? And he hit her and, and he hit her until she stopped and sat still and stopped complaining and she's crying and her, she's got blood on her face. And then he just ramped up to new levels of, of, of condemning her and shaming her and he's got it all figured out and she's full of shit. And every time she would disagree or try to say something, he would backhand her again. And we drove through town like 10, 12 blocks like that. Until finally we're on another one way street and heading up to my grandma's house, I guess. And and she screams, let me out, stop the car. And he actually stopped. He just obeyed. Um, it's a weird thing with my dad, but this would happen from time, from time to time. Um, someone, even me, 
although I didn't do it much, but there were times you'd give him a direct command assertively and he would just fold. It was the weirdest thing, but she did. She said, stop the truck, let me out. And he stopped and she, she climbed over her daughter and me. And I opened the door as she climbed over me and her face was completely red. Like just it, you know, I, I don't want to say that it looked like hamburger, but, but there was not, I couldn't make out her face. Yeah. She was just swelling and blood and, wow. and she climbed over me and she went running down the road toward the oncoming traffic. It was a, a three lane one way. And I, and my dad's like, close the door, I close the door and we start driving again. And we drove about a half a block and Nina's daughter, five years old, gets up in the window and starts banging and yelling for her mom. And so my dad stops the truck again and says, let her out. Oh my God. So I get out of the truck. I open the door. She climbs down and runs down the street toward her mom who is almost to, to the oncoming cars right now. But like, I'm standing there. Nina's still running toward the cars and her daughter takes off after her right in the middle lane of this, this big three lane road. And I got back in the truck and my dad just drives over to grandma's house and we didn't say anything, you know, he didn't say anything about it. We just went in and, um, I don't know what he did, um, but I felt like I was off duty. And so I went and played with, um, I had a Commodore big 20 played with my computer, um, until, um, late later that night, um, when the cops came and, um, and then we'll get into what happened next. Next week on on episode five. Episode five. Oh my God. Whoa. Title for this one yet? I don't know. I don't know. What are you feeling? What are you feeling? I I really like Getaway Bob or Grand Theft Avocado. Getaway Bob, Grand Theft Avocado. listening this week again everyone this is this is so amazing it really is it really is amazing for me um thank you Allie for putting it together and um and thank you everybody for continuing to listen and I hope you'll stay tuned for uh, the exciting stuff coming up yeah We've got a lot of exciting stuff. Don't forget about earnings arrest records, Claire's missing person records. We got a lot we're looking into. A lot of guests we have we're planning to come on. We just hope that you'll stick on for the ride. There you go. And and we'll update you guys. Yeah. Um, as soon as we find out about um, you know, whatever information we can find. Yeah. It's um and I, I'm excited to be doing it. for tuning in to this episode of Frankly Earnest. You can now support the podcast by visiting anchor.fm slash frankly earnest slash support. 
Be sure to visit our Instagram for daily updates and posts for our links at Frankly Earnest Podcast. You don't want to miss out on Sam's TikTok at The Velvet Brick. See you next week.